be discussing something very topical. Two very topical things, in fact. I would love to conduct interviews with people involved in these movements, but at this time I'm unable to do so. So I will just talk about what I know what is going on with their current situations and why these things are relevant to you, my listeners. According to SoundCloud, a big shout out to Cairo, Egypt. I was going to attempt an Arabic shout out, but I'd be assuming that the preferred language of my listeners there is Arabic, and there are a number of other languages spoken there. And while Islam is a predominant religion, others are also present there. So I've decided to simply stick with English in this case and say that whatever your affiliation or nationality, solidarity. And also, I apologize for inflicting such local problems as I'm about to delve into on my substantial international listeners. Hopefully one day we can put all this political BS aside and just be besties from different places. This podcast, however, is focused on the United States, not because nothing else matters, but because if there's anywhere that badly needs a gentle internal intervention, it is the United States. For too long, we sat quietly by as our leaders do things that most of us agree are bad. Most of the time, we agree what the problems are. We as a people just disagree about what to do about it, or the root cause of the bad stuff. I have my own strong opinions on these things, and I have enough of an ego to say, hey, listen to my words, like they mean much. But when voices are added together, things can happen. Most people in the United States understand that cities and states pay for employers of one kind or another to move to town or to stay in town. For example, sports stadiums. Top-level professional teams, meaning, for example, NFL teams, almost always have massive taxpayer subsidies flowing to them. It is almost always an economic loss to the city. Very occasionally, there are other considerations, such as Indianapolis needing to expand this convention center into the space occupied by the former RCA Dome. The Super Bowl was basically a gift from the NFL to the city for supplying the stadium, and it put Indianapolis back on the map as a leading convention host. I may have certain opinions regarding the value of pursuing that path, but at least when they worked out the deal, the city and state had an objective in mind. Very rarely, however, is that the case. Most subsidies, though, don't go to sports teams. And before we go further, I want to take a minute to define what we're talking about when I say subsidy. There are different definitions of the term. I'm going to use a broad definition used by that hated group, the World Trade Organization. They define a subsidy as any beneficial as any financial benefit provided by a government which gives an unfair advantage to a specific industry, business, or individual. And there are, broadly speaking, five types of subsidies that they talk about. Cash, tax concessions such as exemptions, credits, or deferrals, assumption of risks such as loan guarantees, government purchase policies that pay above market price, above free market price, and stock purchases that keep a company's stock price higher than market levels. Now, I use the WTO definitions because they make sense and both governments and companies are widely beasts and distort as much as they can. The WTO actually exists to figure out what those distortions are and even them out when one country or another does too much of it. Well, at least that's part of its mission. So even though this podcast considers the WTO to be a tool of imperialism and the capitalists, I'll accept their classifications on this subject. Now, on to the meat of today's topic. 
because subsidies affect us all. Our form of government is Republican, small r. We all know this. If you are aware of this to found my podcast and you understand what Republicanism is, it means that that the people themselves don't actually have a direct hand in decisions made by government. We vote for people who then make decisions for us. This is why conservatives are uncomfortable with high voter participation, and always have been. Our system is predicated on the average person should not be directly involved in major decisions. And I understand that. The Founding Fathers were not, uh, were not the people of Boston that were taken to the streets. The Founding Fathers were the elites, primarily living out in the countryside. The primary motivation for revolution was that the Crown had agreed to not allow settlement beyond a line of demarcation drawn through the Appalachian Mountains. This happened after colonial authorities had sold titles to land beyond that boundary. This meant that the colonial elites were limited in the wealth they could gather for themselves. The plantation system was already in trouble by the time of the revolution. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was very diligent in his research into soil depletion and concluded that it was inherent to the plantation system. Those who were his revered yeoman farmers did not experience such depletion. To maintain the plantation system and continue to accrue wealth, the elites needed new land. Agriculture was the industry of of the American colonies. Manufacturing was deliberately withheld as part of the triangle trade and continued to be suppressed in the U.S. until after the War of 1812, which really is what marked the end of the country's economic dependence on the U.K. This history, of course, is not is mostly not taught at the high school level, or at least if it is now, it was not when I was in school. It is taught at the college level, fully referenced. This isn't an academic podcast, and I long ago lost access to JSTOR and the other resources, I think, though, the book Mr. Jefferson's Lost Cause goes into it a little. It's been a while since I read that, though. And I go into this show to, sh- to, and I go into this to show just how, from the very beginning, the public was given one narrative, while the elites acted because of another reason. And that difference is the basic. In that difference in the basic why of the country has continued to this day. It is why we have this Republican form of governance, with a very few people making decisions on behalf of everyone else. It is why states east of the Mississippi don't have voter referendums. The system was built from the ground up to ignore the will of voters in favor of the status quo, a status quo that at the time was dependent on slavery as a primary economic characteristic. Certain things have gradually changed, such as the direct election of senators and more recent states having voter initiatives specifically permitted as a check on the power of the elites. In other states, voter movements are usually specifically legally uh, opposed by the argument that legislators have specific rights and the people have no authority to strip them of the right of making decisions on their behalf, which if you want to call what we have a form of democracy is kind of messed up. Okay, I know that that was a very long introduction to this episode. That was necessary because it brings us to government subsidies, and particularly local government, which generally is built along the same system. Essentially, much of the time elected politicians are proxies for local elites, such as owners of car dealerships, 
major employers, developers, religious leaders, and the like. Some are more open about it than others. At the end of the day, however, local politicians have several major priorities, and they can conflict or align from situation to situation. There is a desire for re-election, for one. The best way to be re-elected at the local level is to have a strong economy, a vibrant economy. What creates a strong, vibrant economy? Jobs. Specifically, high, higher paying jobs. Higher paying jobs mean people can buy more. Higher paying jobs, however, in and of themselves do not translate into better lives. For example, if housing costs rise in lockstep with wage increases, then those gains disappear. And for those who do not get wage increases, rising rents mean they can actually get hurt. Rents rise because, hey, people can afford to pay more rent. So you have to sign a new lease at the end of the current one to take that into consideration. Rising rents means that the landlords make more money off of each property. And landlords have a lot of say in city development in every city. Since the Great Recession, big, big companies have either been created or have diversified to pick up as many housing units as possible. They then lobby against the expansion of housing because a greater demand again means higher rent and workers get poorer at their expense. But higher wages are always good, right? They are trumpeted without context by the media, even as the elites take those higher wages from the workers through rent and purchase price increases. So the pursuit of higher wage jobs gives a perception of a good economy to the voters while satisfying the economic demands of at least some elites in town, so everyone thinks they win. But this is America, with the best government that money can buy, so we always find a worse way to get, a, to get, a, to get at best mediocre results. And that is subsidies, which I opened the episode with, and that brings us to what is happening in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield happens to be in one of the three blue voting counties in Missouri, which means they tend to vote, vote in Democrats, unlike the rest of the state. This is important because when you look at a two-party system like ours, you have to understand that the major parties both operate in much the same way. Generally, city governments are going to cater to developers. Generally, they will chase higher-paying jobs. And generally, they will try to plow the streets after every snowfall because that is the one issue voters will hammer politicians on. Now, to introduce the last part of the story, Bucky's is a Texas-based gas station chain. They have been aggressively expanding in recent years. They opened their full first travel, their first full travel center in, I think it was 2012. These travel centers are aggressively Texan. I mean, they have like eight. 80 to 120 pumps. Their largest travel center has 68,000 square feet. For reference, a big box store is defined as having more than five at more than 50,000 square feet. So they're basically a big box convenience store. Now, I've been at a Bucky's and it was quite an experience. I mean, it truly is Texas sized. They have fresh brisket tacos. <clears throat> they have a furniture section. And they have lots and lots of, well, everything. Now, the, the employees are, way, are well paid. Driving down the interstate, there are billboards with their starting wages now, which both attracts applicants since they tend to be several dollars above the prevailing wage. And, it drive, and they drive more business since, since many people like to support businesses that pay well. 
If Bucky's were just putting a new store into Springfield and that was the end of it, this would be an entirely different episode. In fact, I probably wouldn't do an episode on it, honestly, though I might applaud them on Twitter. But that isn't the whole story. The city of Springfield, meaning the, govern the government of the city, meaning the city council, is preparing a package of subsidies to the tune of $9.2 million, using what they call, quote-unquote, economic development tools. One is an infrastructure reimbursement agreement that says, hey, you're spending money on the property you're buying. We'll cover the cost of the utility hookups and the driveways and parking lots and the landscaping. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to have the city offer to reimburse me for paving my gravel driveway? The city currently has two sales taxes, and they are proposing using half of both of those to fund the reimbursement for the next 20 years. So they can't use that money for any other purpose for the next 20 years. The other part is a community improvement district, which is another way of saying a tax district for that purpose, with a new sales tax and use tax again for the next 20 years. All this for a gas station. A very nice gas station, but this is a 20-year financial commitment to a 100-pump proposed gas station, just as every automaker is ramping up electric vehicles. Just as they will be finishing construction and hiring employees at $17 an hour, which by the way is not enough to rent a decent one-bedroom apartment and cover all, of the, all the other living expenses by itself in Springfield, just as they're doing that, the gasoline market is going to start a steady decline. If Bucky succeeds and survives over the next 20 years there, it will be because it drives out most others in the area. Right now, gasoline consumption is below the same point it was in 2019, and with the new car fleet being more and more electrified, it is unlikely to not reach that point ever again. This is not a new trend, by the way. There are always ups and downs in consumption, but it is unlikely that the U.S. will ever consume as much fossil fuels as we did in 2002. Between the effects of the pandemic forcing lifestyle and workplace changes, some of which will likely be a new norm, such as more work from home and fewer office-based activities and so on, demand for gas is just going to drop. Not suddenly, but perceptively, like maybe in five years there will be fewer gas stations total in a given area, maybe if only just by a little bit. Over time, those numbers will continue to decrease. It is axiomatic that gas is not where these places actually make their money. They make their money inside the store. Some places are likely to survive. There's this wonderful little place in Springfield on Route 66 next to a fire station. Uh, it, it's a gas station. I want to say it's an AMPM. It has a small Indian grocery store called Indian Spice House inside. Now, it doesn't look like much from the outside, but it's the kind of little place everyone should treasure, adding distinctiveness to the entire community. I really hope they survive the gas station shakeout. Bucky's, on the other hand, is not being built to serve the community except for the jobs they provide. They will be directly off the interstate to pick up tourists. Bucky's is for travelers. It's a, it's a road trip pit stop wonderland. They have a loyal following with a strong brand. That loyal following and strong brand, however, work against other locally owned places. The people who live in the area are likely to see a material decline in living standards as Bucky's crowds out the competition in an 
ever-increasingly competitive landscape in multiple areas, whether tourism, fuel sales, whatever. And as a former truck driver, I can say that Bucky's is not truck friendly. That AMPM just off the interstate on Route 66 in Springfield with the Indian Spice House, they have a couple diesel pumps out back and a couple of spots where a truck driver can stop for a half hour break. Bucky's, on the other hand, bans trucks. I don't demand that every place allows trucks in, but when you're putting a travel center on an interstate, it's really nice if you do. So the Springfield City Council is proposing kneecapping themselves financially for the next 20 years, shifting money away from other projects in a way that will keep them from doing other things to benefit the community, for the private benefit of a company headquartered in, in another state. With perhaps 30 jobs that admittedly pay better than existing convenience stores, but still do not provide a living wage for the area. Every deal our elected leaders make have a cost of opportunity. In every community, elected officials make deals. They are often just as bad as this one in Springfield. They are made because that is what our system is designed to do to remove control of the purse strings of government from the people and create a much smaller pool of people who are the only ones who have to be convinced, because that usually ensures that deals like this go through. I caught myself there. I nearly said business-friendly deals. This is not business-friendly. A business-friendly deal would remove barriers to businesses in general. This is subsidizing one company, giving them a massive competitive edge over other local businesses. In fact, it is a very business unfriendly deal, unless your business is called Bucky's. And that is exactly the point of how our government is structured. Elect a handful of people who can be isolated and persuaded by moneyed interests. But there is hope. There is always hope. I'll draw your attention to another city. Kansas City, where a local group of activists have, pre have prevented a similar handout from taking place, but one with a much more malicious feel to it. Redeveloping a low-cost neighborhood while handing over a big chunk of change to the developers to compensate them for the cost of doing stuff to make money. This was almost cartoonishly evil. Using money raised from taxes on that area to clear the area of the people who paid the taxes there in the first place. A subsidy to lower the cost of building high-end housing paid for by the low-income people who would be forcibly removed. But Kansas City fortunately has a fantastic group, KC Tenants, that fights these kinds of battles. They won. Instead of the subsidy going to to MAC for redevelopment of the area into luxury apartments and condos and the like. It is being cut up into chunks to go into things like a fund for affordable housing in the area. And that is what organizing does. It is possible to make a difference. Okay, let me say that again because it came out wrong. It is possible to make a difference. It would be a lot better if we lived in a society where any subsidies would have to be approved by the residents directly. I think it is possible to do that under our current system. The state legislature could pass a law requiring that local residents approve subsidies through referendums. That would actually kick ass. In the meantime, groups like Bam Up Bucky's and KC Tenants will have to fight against proposals for taxpayer money to be given to private businesses 
to bribe them and to, you know, conduct business by fighting against the influence of successful businesses on the small group of elected officials in power to make these deals. Hopefully, Dam Up Bucky's succeeds like the KC Tenants Group did. I'm not involved in either one. I'm just using these local examples because they are local enough for me to have picked up on them. They have the temerity to stand up to the moneyed interests and push against business as usual in a public and vocal way. And I hope that regardless of what the result of Dam Up Bucky's is, that more people recognize that they can come together and make a stand for the interests of themselves and everyone around them. Because, hey, bad stuff is going to happen. Into every life, some rain must fall, right? But the more organization we have, the more resilient we as a community become. And on that note, I'm going to thank you for listening. If you would like more information on either of these organizations, you can find them on Twitter. And uh, in accounts and other information will be in the show notes. You can find more information about groups like that in my Twitter feed. My Twitter is also listed below. If you want to support me, spread the word, leave reviews on platforms that allow it, or join my Patreon. I also have my Rantcast spot, truck spotting, too hot for work, that you can find on my Patreon. It has a much different feel to it. All episodes are free and ad-free. Any donations I get will go to pay the show's bills, allow me to do more in-depth research, and support workers as I donate to strike funds and worker co-ops, as well as other forms of mutual aid. I ask that my listeners do the same for workers local to themselves as opportunity arises. Together, we can build a better system, a better world. Again, thank you for listening, whether you are in Egypt or Norway or Florida or anywhere else. Thank you.